went through this series of, through, of Galatians, and, and you know, first week we, we were talking about you know, how important this is because, because there was, there's only one hope. There's only one and only hope. There's, there's, not a lot of, there's not a lot of, you know, hopes out there. There's just one. And even if you were to say, well, I've heard about others, well, you may have heard about others, but understand what the Bible is telling us is that ultimately they are not hope. It's a dead end. And then last week we talked about there's only one gospel. There's only one gospel. And, and, and there's a tendency that we have sometimes when we think about there only being one gospel is, is we think like, oh, there's, you know, there's, um, one gospel, and so God went to his gospel closet, and he chose one. And he says, oh, here's one. Here's a, here's, a good, here's a good plan. Here's a good gospel. But what we need to understand, which is what Paul is trying to help the Galatians understand, is that no, there is only one gospel. It's not one of many that God could have chosen. There is only one, and it is this gospel of grace. Well, today we're going to kind of look at the opposite side. We're going to see in, from the opposite side why this is so important. But before we do, you know, um, sometimes uh, my mind works a certain way where I get so many like things I've been reading or studying or thinking about, and they get really complicated. And so I have some some places I go to help me understand um, something. And if I'm trying to explain it to some other people, it's to help them. And I really hadn't come up with a name for this until I was out on a run this week and I thought, this is a name. And I wish I would have actually gotten the image for, this, for the name, but it's what I'm going to now call cookie philosophy. So cookie philosophy. It's philosophy that's centered around the cookie. And one of the prime principles of cookie philosophy is this. All utopian ideas of freedom break down when two kids want the same cookie. I don't care who is telling me about this is how society should work. This is how government works. This is how um, things can work so that you know, we can have you know, freedoms and, and all. I don't care. I don't care, I always take it to the cookie test. Will it stand up when two kids want the same cookie? Notice what I'm saying. I'm not saying two kids want a cookie. They want the same cookie. Now some of you are like, oh, that's easy to fix. You just produce another cookie. No, they want that cookie. For some of you parents, grandparents, you know, you might maybe instead of talking about possessions like a cookie, let's talk about uh, geographic expansion. Let's say instead of a cookie, they want to sit on your lap. Now, I know some of you might think this might not be true, but I'm pretty sure you cannot produce another lap. You only got one. You can't just suddenly say, well, here's another lap that you can sit in. No, you got one. As soon as two kids want to occupy the same space, 
Somebody's not going to get what they want. Breaks down. And you, you all have approaches. We all have approaches as parents or teachers or anybody that's worked with children. We all have approaches to dealing with these things. You know, sometimes we think like, you know, I just need to reason. Ever try to reason with two kids who want the same thing? Maybe we just need to re-educate them. Maybe we try to get them to share. You go first, you go second. We'll come up with all these things, but make no mistake, either one person or both persons' freedoms have been taken away or limited. See, that's the problem we have with, with you know, when, when we think about, you know, how, 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 can we, how can we live, how can we live in a way that, that's, that's good, and, and we come up with all of these ideas, but ultimately, to make those ideas work, we have to do something to the people, especially the people who don't agree with us. One of the dangers that we're going to look out at today, one of the dangers of a false gospel, a gospel of the law or gospel of the works, is that it's ultimately a desire for control. I want control. And so I want control. So God, just give me some rules and I'll keep the rules. I want control. That'll give me some control. And if you don't give me rules, God, I'm going to make some up because that will give me control. I will make up rules that may be really hard, even harder than, than what you might say. You know, I'm going to not, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say I'm not going to um, eat for, for 10 days. Or I'm going to pray, you know, on, on the hard concrete floor, you know, on my bare knees. You know, I'm going to do something because then, guess what? You're going to bless me. You're, you're going to look favorably upon me. Some of us go the other way. Instead of too hard of things, ours are maybe a little too easy. Yeah, I'm going to show up. I'm going to go to, I'm going to, go to a worship service. And, you know, that, you know, that's what I need to do. Or, you know, I'm going to get up every morning and, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, pray and read my Bible. And that's what I'm going to do. Because when I do that, God, I'm now taking control. And you have to bless me. Notice there's nothing wrong with praying. There's nothing wrong with coming to worship service. There's nothing wrong with studying God's Word, beginning every day that way. What's wrong is when we think by doing those things Somehow we're going to be controlling our lives or controlling what God does to us that day. That's actually what the problem is. And this is what, this is what inevitably happens. The, the, the desire for control of our lives almost always leads to the need to control others. 
the two kids who want the same lap or the same cookie, the one mom who just wants some peace, somebody's going to have to control somebody. It's the danger of the false gospel. It's the danger of the gospel of works because it's, it's ultimately going to come from my life and my desire to control my own life, my own righteousness, and then I'm going to extend it to you. And that's exactly what we see happening. Exactly what we see happening in the letter to the Galatians. So Paul, here's Paul, he's, he's exasperated, he's frustrated, he's angry because he knows the gospel, he knows what happened when he received the gospel to him and he was there when a lot of these Christians in Galatia also heard the gospel and received it. And he saw what they were experiencing. He knew what he experienced. And then he's like, how could you walk away from the truth that you experienced? This isn't this, the story of, of, of the Galatian Christians who, who read about one religion and read about another religion and then thought about it and said, this one seems better. This one seems more reasonable. If that were the case, Paul wouldn't be as upset. Paul's upset because he saw that when they heard about the good news of Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ came to do, that they received it. And their lives were changed. They experienced the truth. And because they had experienced the truth, in Paul's mind, that seals it. It's not the, just the competition of ideas. They've known the truth. They've lived the truth. And so Paul is going back and he's going to recount this story in chapter 2. And if you open to Galatians chapter 2 or you can read on the screen... And here Paul says he had just told the story of how he came to Christ and his interaction with um, some of the church leaders. And then he says, then after 14 years. So we're, we're somewhere in the late 40s at this point, early 50s maybe at the very, very latest. But he says, after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Some people think this is a, this is a weakness, a limiting thing for, for Christians, people who really 
you know, want to live for Christ, and, and that is that, that, that you know, we're people of truth. We don't get to you know, bend the truth. We don't get to stretch the truth and be people of truth. Oh, Christians do this, by the way. They, I'm not saying they don't, but I'm saying they shouldn't. And every time you do, every time you play kind of loose and fast with the truth, every time you do, it weakens your ability to tell people that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the truth, that Jesus himself is the way, the truth, and the life. If we're going to be people of truth, we have to be thoroughly people of truth in every situation. We can't be thinking about, you know, what we can get away with. We can't be thinking about, you know, how we can shade things a certain way. Even though we're not lying, we're giving somebody at least the impression of something. No. We're people of truth. But what Paul says about some of his opponents, not all of them, but about some of them in verse 4, he says, false brothers secretly brought in, slipped in to spy out our freedom. One thing that we need to know is that truth is never deceitful. It's never deceitful. These false brothers, the way Paul explains it, false brothers doesn't mean he thinks they're brothers. He's saying they presented themselves as Christians. They presented themselves as brothers. They're false. And they were actually brought in Think about that. That meant that there was already some people in these churches that brought them in. And he says, slipped in to spy out our freedom. The enemy can use whatever the enemy wants. The enemy is not bound by sense of truth or ethics. But if we're going to be people of truth, then we can never be deceitful. You know, I, I know that this isn't always the intent. I know sometimes we can be misunderstood. I think sometimes we can be misinterpreted. I think sometimes we're just not careful and we're not clear. And I think sometimes we just don't think things through. I remember this strategy that was used back in the 70s, an evangelism strategy in the 70s and 80s, that I'm going to tell you, the people who did it, I don't consider them evil, I don't consider them false, but it always bothered me. Because what they would do is they would say, here's the technique. Create a survey, okay? 
create a survey, and then go door to door with this survey. So you're going and you're doing a community survey, and you say, you know, I'm from Lai Baptist Church, and here's, here's this survey I'm doing. But in truth, you had no intent to use the survey. You collected their answers, but you had no intent to use the survey. All you were doing was trying to come up with a reason to knock on the door and begin a conversation that you were trained to then lead towards an evangelism opportunity. Maybe that doesn't bother you. It bothers me. So if anybody out there has been wanting to suggest to me a new strategy for evangelism, don't bring that one to me. It's a hard no, okay? Again, again, well-meaning people bringing the gospel of truth, but doing it in a way that wasn't just up front. And, and, and I get what they were trying to do. They were trying to help Christians who were kind of reticent, didn't know how to start a conversation, giving them a way to start a conversation. But ultimately, in my opinion, it was deceitful. We're not allowed to use those, those things. I remember a college group, not, wasn't, wasn't Baptist, it's just a college group at the University of Hawaii, and, and they, this was back in the 80s, and they had, you know, we couldn't advertise on social media, so they advertised by just, you know, printing eight and a half by 11 sheets and, you know, putting a message on here that just said, how's your love life? And then it had a time and a place. How's your love life? And it talked about, you know, they were going to talk about how your love life was. The picture even suggested this was about dating. A lot of people went. A lot of students went. Because they thought, oh, we're going to go to this place and, you know, hear about love and hear about dating. Again, it was evangelism presentation. The whole thing was just presenting the gospel. Do you think that gave those students a favorable impression of the gospel of truth? They had a great turnout, but they also, back then, we couldn't go on social media again. Um, instead, you had the letters to the editor. There were a lot of people that weren't happy and, you know, was that an innocent mistake or was that intentional? I don't know. It wasn't there. It wasn't part of the planning. But to me, truth, truth, what Paul is telling us is can never, never be deceitful. In fact, we have to work extra hard even to be, under, to be understood So Paul, first of all, tells us this. He goes there, and then he talks about the opponents. And then he says in verse 6, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. <clears throat> those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. 
And what he's saying is, those who people seem to think were, they might have been the official leaders, they might have just been people that were like influential in the church or others thought were influential. Paul's saying they didn't add anything. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't say anything. They didn't try to correct me or anything like that. Apparently at this point, they're good with it. And he says, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Paul's saying, you know, I went to this place and did what I did 14 years earlier. I just told them, told them what I believed. We had these discussions. They were great. No one was saying, hey, Paul, you know that Titus guy? Yeah, he's a Christian, but, you know, he's a Gentile, so maybe you should make sure you get circumcised. No, nobody said that. Nobody said, Paul, I'm kind of bothered by this. Or, yeah, go preach the gospel. But then, after they convert, then you need to tell them these other things. Paul's saying, no. In fact, quite the contrary. They were happy. And what he says there in verse 9, he's talking about James and Cephas and John. He says, they gave the right hand of fellowship. They were fully endorsing what I did and what I was planning to do. And if anything, they only asked me to do the thing I was already going to do anyways. Don't forget about the poor. And Paul's presenting this picture. He's presenting this picture. Gospel of grace. Gospel of grace has been presented. Gospel of grace has been received. All the people with the gospel of grace, what does it do? This true gospel unites true believers. Again, we don't like to learn things this way. We don't like stories. We only like stories to illustrate points. Paul's not telling this story simply to illustrate a point. He's actually teaching through this story. He's telling people, look, those, those other guys, they were false brothers. That someone kind of got in here, there was a plan, got them in here to influence you. And then he says, and look, up until recently, this was, this was great. No one was preaching a contrary gospel. No one was saying what I'm doing was wrong. In fact, they were celebrating it and they were welcoming it. It was uniting us. We could see the possibilities. We could see what God was doing. We could see the advancement of the kingdom. We could see the hope that what God had done among us, it, the first 
believers, all of whom were, were, were Jewish. But all that we had received, now, wait a minute, if God's taking this to the Gentiles, oh my gosh, he's taking this to the world. How exciting that is? Especially for them. Because they have no concept of this. This is, this is radical stuff for them. There's a, there's a unity. There's a unity of spirit because there's a humility here. There's a humility from, from Peter where Peter is saying, you know what, I can't be everywhere. I can't do everything. In fact, you know, even though Peter was, was the first one we find in the book of Acts who goes to, to the Gentiles, we see that Peter really believes his strength is still working with the Jewish people. He's not the guy that wants to get on boats and go sailing around the empire. And so when he knows Barnabas and Paul want to do this, awesome. You do that. You focus there. We will focus here. There's humility there. The accepting of different roles, different missions. And that's okay. But they also had this common kingdom purpose. They, they knew that this wasn't about Paul or Barnabas or James or Peter. It wasn't about, you know, who's going to make a name for themselves. It wasn't about who's going to be remembered. It wasn't about who's going to get the largest following. No. What about the kingdom? Advancing the kingdom. At this point, at this point, it's about maybe 17 to 18 years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. About that long, the church has been, you know, expanding from Pentecost forward. And, and they, 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 they see, they see that not only is there advancement, there's also resistance. In fact, Paul was part of the resistance for a while. They've seen their brothers and sisters die. Some of them be thrown into prison. Some of them killed by either being stoned to death or, or just you know, being deprived of all the things that they needed. They knew that this wasn't like this you know, happy ending for everybody on this earth situation. And so what their focus is on is not on just themselves and really not on themselves at all. They have a kingdom purpose. And they, they see this value. They see the value in each other. This is taking a little step off of the path for a second. But I'm going to take the step and then I'll step back on. Seeing, they, they could see the value that each one brought, and that helped, that helped solidify the unity. You know, one of the things I think that happens in, in churches that weakens churches or prevents churches from becoming stronger is when we stop seeing the kingdom value in each other. 
that we stop seeing the kingdom value in, in different groups, people who are different from me. Back when I would really like be, you know, at seminary and things like that, and, you know, I'd be right there, all the debates, all the debates over, you know, uh, you know, music and everything else that was taking place. One of the things that really helped me was to think like this. What is the value? What is the kingdom value that the senior adults bring to my church? What is the kingdom value that the teenagers and the children and the young adults and the young families what is the kingdom value that they're bringing do i see them that way or do i simply see them as people who are different from me and because they're different from me they don't have as much value because you know god he can only work one way and he can only work with one kind of person right well hopefully hopefully you know that's wrong. In fact, quite the opposite is true. They see it here. They get it. Peter's probably like, Paul is so weird. He just wants to just take off and go and can't sit still. And Paul is probably like, Peter, he's, he's such a homebody. You know, he never, you know, he never, he's not adventurous. He doesn't want to do, you know, just take, you know, the Word of God as far as we can go and then go farther. One of them is trying to strengthen the core. The other one is trying to push the borders. They're both important. They're both needed. And then we get this last section. In verse 11, it says, but when Cephas, by the way, those of you who don't know, Cephas is Peter. It's his Hebrew name. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So Paul starts off again. He's angry. So he says, he says the hard thing first, and then he explains why. He says, for before certain men came from James... He was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, and he's talking about James and the men from James came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So get the picture here, what's happening, right? Peter goes up to Antioch. Antioch is in Syria. There's several Antiochs, by the way, but this is the one in Syria. And he goes up there, and he's hanging out with everybody, and everything's cool. Gentiles who are Christians are there. Jewish people who are Christians are there. And they're, they're eating together. They're, you know, fellowshipping together, worshiping, all of this. No, no problem. No problem at all. And then from Jerusalem... James, who is the other like, kind of leader of the Jerusalem church, some men come from James. And then Peter pulls away from the Gentile Christians. 
pulls away and he and he's kind of like just kind of associating over here with you know with the circumcision party and not only that but because of how peter was acting some of the other jewish christians then they also start pulling away and of course you can get the picture that in this church it's created this disunity you know i you know sometimes like if you've ever had the reverse i know in hawaii we often get people come and from other churches and ministry teams and and everything and they come and they visit with us they minister with us they're on a mission trip and it's all great it's all good you get to know them you connect with them but then rarely and i've done it a couple times but rarely you might get the opportunity to go to their church and now they're they're not the ones somewhere else and sometimes they're the same they were here just as welcoming just as accepting just as connecting with you but sometimes not cuz they're back in their element they're back in among the people that you know they have ex- pre-existing relationships with people they may be trying to impress or people that they feel they really care about their how their judgment and it it's always disappointing whenever that's happened to me i hope you never have had to experience that or ever will but that's kind of the picture of what's going on here and then paul says the most condemning thing here in verse 14 he says when i saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel this is why he confronts peter he said i saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel i said to cephas before them all in other words this wasn't like hey peter come over here i want to talk to you no it's right there in front of everybody peter if you though a jew live like a gentile and not like a jew how can you force the gentiles to live like jews just calls peter out because he's he knows peter he's had these conversations with peter he's he's heard about the vision where where god shows a vision to peter and says take and eat don't call anything unclean that i call clean and peter's embrace this embrace this not just in going and evangelizing cornelius but he apparently also embraced it in other ways. We don't have it recorded in the Bible, but I'm pretty sure he had some bacon and pork chops and things that would have been forbidden on his, you know, if he was following the the Old Testament food laws. Paul's calling out his hypocrisy. And you got to know this this stings. This stings. because if you think about their their 
basing what they believe on the Old Testament, and they're also basing what they believe on the stories of Jesus. And so all that we read in the Gospels haven't been written down yet, but they're, they're telling those stories over again and again. And Peter himself probably told these stories again and again. And who is called hypocrites by Jesus? Paul knows. Paul knows. This take, I'm, I mean, Peter knows. Peter, this takes Peter back. 20 years when he's walking around with Jesus and Jesus is calling out the Pharisees and he's saying, those guys are hypocrites. And Jesus is doing a really tough thing. People don't realize that the Pharisees were the superheroes of the Jewish people. They loved them. Jesus wasn't like picking on somebody he knew everybody hated so he could get the the sympathy and the support of the crowd. He went after their heroes and he goes, guys, Let me just tell you, your heroes are hypocrites. All the things they say and they pretend to to be, they're not really. And he calls them out. And Peter was there. And Peter was there when, when he finally saw the Pharisees for who they were. And Jesus called them out. Paul's calling out Peter in the same way. This has got to hurt. It's got to sting. And it's just summed up so well. Their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. What was... What was the false gospel doing? It wasn't just a little different interpretation, another way of believing. It wasn't just a little different take on what Jesus did. No, this false gospel, this gospel of works, this gospel of the law was going to divide the church. A false gospel will divide true believers. It's why Paul is so upset And he's not upset like how we sometimes get upset where we get mad at the person. He's upset because he sees what's what's at risk. He sees the danger. We see Paul doesn't believe in this unity for unity's sake. A lot of churches have adopted the idea that we should have unity and that unity is really important. And you know that I talk about that, but it's never unity for unity's sake. It's unity because of the gospel of grace. It's unity because we have expressed faith in Jesus Christ and we are now new creations and we have the Holy Spirit who unites us. It's not a manufactured unity. A false gospel will divide true believers Paul is not including Peter and James and these people with the false brothers. This is a different group. He's actually talking about people that he is not questioning their salvation. He is not questioning their their faith. And what happens here? The opposite of what the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace unites us. The gospel of grace helps us to appreciate that all of us are objects of grace and that God has given us kingdom value and I can see that in you and you hopefully can see that in me. 
false gospel, a gospel of works, that leads to comparisons. That leads to me thinking that I may not be better than everybody, but I'm better than you. It leads to grouping together, creating strata. We value each other, not on our kingdom value, but on whatever standard grading that we have devised leads to division. See, Paul is arguing for the unity that comes in Jesus Christ and underlying all of this I believe is Paul's firm belief that there can be no true Christian community if works rather than grace is the basis for salvation and thus participation in the community. If you have a gospel of works, a gospel of law, you cannot have true Christian community. Oh, you can have a nice group. People can seem to get along, but you cannot have true Christian community. True Christian community in which the Holy Spirit is the one who unites. Where there is not just enough grace, there's an abundance of grace. There's an overflow of joy. There's an overflow of peace. When we think about what God can do with us, it's not the sky's the limit. There is no limit. But as soon as we make the gospel of law, we put a limit. Oh, it may be really high, maybe something we don't think we can get to, but there is a limit. This false gospel, it matters because it leads to the destruction of all that the true gospel is trying to accomplish. And at best, it, pl it places something there that might look like it, but really isn't it. It's the true gospel of grace. Someone in Sunday school today asked, you know, can there be any connection between, you know, the idea of karma and, and Christianity? And, and the answer is no. And thank God. Thank God. Thank God that we do not get what we deserve. Thank God that it's not a competition about who can, who can jump through the most hoops and do the most things, and then God's going to bless us based on that. Thank God that he wants to lavish on us love. He wants to lavish on us joy and peace, abundant life. I think the problem we sometimes have with grace is we put a limit. Even if we think high, there's still a limit. What God is offering 
when we put a limit on it, is too close to what the world offers. And so what the world offers looks very attractive. But if you've ever tasted and seen the goodness of God, you will know, you will know there is nothing in this world that compares.